Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. If you're trying to get on to Revelation 3 from one of your devices, uh, we know that Wi-Fi is in and out in this room. And so trying to get that corrected. So for those of you who use your devices, uh, hopefully we'll have that taken care of soon. But anyhow, anyway, find Revelation 3 because I want you to be there. Stephen, you did an excellent job this morning leading us in our praise and worship. Uh, if you have not met Stephen and his wife, Mandy, Mandy, where? Mandy's setting, Mandy waved to us real big. Uh, I want you to meet this sweet couple. They are uh, been with us just for a short time, but they are gifted people, and uh, we look forward to uh, them using their gifts with us in this body here at Lamar Avenue. And uh, Stephen, thank you uh, for leading us this morning. I want to start in Revelation 1 with the words that we read last week, because I think these are powerful words for us to hear before we dive in to the diagnosis of the church that we're looking at this morning. Revelation 1, hear these words, beginning in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you've seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It has been a blessing to have studied through these seven churches the last few weeks. You know, sometimes as, as a minister, sometimes as I close out a series, I get really sad. I know you may not, and you may think that's kind of childish of a preacher to do that, but I find myself so embedded in that particular text or that series that we're going through as a church that sometimes it's sad to bring a closure to that particular one. And this is one, and I know many of you have even made encouraging comments to me of how blessed you have been uh, to receive the, the hearing of these words from these churches these are powerful, powerful words that come from Jesus through the Apostle John. They are as timely now as they were then. They are words and a message that we need to hear in the church today. And so at the end of a long route, about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia, was the city of Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was the wealthiest of the seven cities to whom Jesus wrote. In fact, they were so prosperous that when an earthquake destroyed the city back in 60 AD, the people refused aid from the Roman government. They paid for and completed repairs all on their own. Now, that sounds really good to us today, doesn't it? But I want to tell you, back then, when they did that, that's not only wealth, but it really came across as arrogance to people in the region. 
And so people didn't know how to take that, that they weren't asking for help when all the other people around them were. They didn't know what to do with that. And so you might, have think, you might be thinking to yourself, well, we're saving the best church for the last. Well, you can throw out that notion because Jesus does just the opposite. The downward spiral that began at Ephesus and continued through Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis reached rock bottom at Laodicea. Even the church at Sardis, which Jesus called spiritually dead, had some believers that were hanging on, had a few believers that were not giving up. But as far as one could tell, the church at Laodicea was a totally counterfeit church. Unlike Smyrna, there's no persecution. Unlike Pergamum, there's no false doctrine. There was no Jezebel-like spirit like in Thyatira. He didn't warn them that he would come like a thief in the night like he did with Sardis. He didn't threaten to remove their lampstand as he did Ephesus. He didn't berate them for tolerating false teachings or immorality as he did Pergamum and Thyatira. You see, outwardly, the church at Laodicea appeared to be very strong, appeared to be very prosperous. And the people who worship there consider themselves to be very blessed and to be very happy, 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 as we would say today, okay? They lived in a town that other people envied. So if you were not from Laodicea, they would look at you and they envied everything that you had and everything that you stood for, and they, they wanted to be like Laodicea. You see, Laodicea was a comfortable place to live and a comfortable place to go to church. Now, the key word there, if you're taking notes... I want you to underline or circle the key word, which is comfortable, okay? Town had everything. Church thought they had everything. And so life was just very, very comfy. That can be a lethal combination that leaves a terrible taste in the mouth of Jesus. Here's a church that seemed to have everything it needed. But as far as Jesus is concerned, here's what he says. He says, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked, and you're so lukewarm that it's turning my stomach. And so I want you to listen to these words. Man, that makes you just want to jump right in to a passage and read it, doesn't it? It does me because it makes me want to know exactly what their problem was and the hope that we see in life. And so to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the, say it with me, church, amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. He says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, And so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. 
Now go back to verse 14 a minute. We usually say amen when we're done with prayers, right? And it means let's eat. But amen literally means it is true. So anytime you amen something in a sermon, you're saying, I believe that, it's true, or another way to say it is, so be it, okay? And let me say this, it is okay to say amen. Thank you. There are times when Jesus would start out a sentence by saying, amen, amen, meaning truly, truly. So when Jesus says, these are the words of the amen, Jesus is saying, he's the truth. He's the only word that you need to hold on to. Boy, we need to hear that today, don't we? The only thing in life that we can really hold on to and know that it's going to last is the amen of Jesus. That's it. But in our life today, man, we hold on to everything else, don't we? And we hold on, and boy, we enjoy the ride, and we think, this is it. Life can't get any better than this, and I mean, this is how it's going to be. Then we fall flat on our face to realize the only thing that can really give you security in this life is a relationship with God. That's it. He starts this letter. I think what he's saying is the only thing, church, you lay out of sins, the only thing that you need to cling to is me. And you're clinging to everything else but me. That kind of perks our ears up, doesn't it? We say amen to all God has said because Jesus is the final amen to all of God. And because Jesus is the faithful and true witness, we can completely trust him. And so the Son of God is speaking, and he's faithful to his people, and he is who he says he is. And so for the church at Laodicea, it means that when Christ issues his diagnosis, they can't escape it by saying, well, that's just his opinion. No, it's the word of the Son of God who's faithful and who's true in all he says. And so when Jesus speaks, the church must listen because he speaks the truth. If there's any message that we need to hear, we need to wake up to each of these seven congregations to see what is Jesus really trying to get them to wake up from. Because you notice in most of these, as he kind of gives the diagnosis, that's the key phrase that he gives is, wake up and repent. In other words, wake up and change your ways, change your attitude, and whatever you need to do to get in line with Jesus, then do it. Because anything else that you're in line with, you're going to sink. But when you're in line and when you're following after Jesus, things are going to be okay. You know, right now in some of our lives, maybe you've hit rock bottom. Maybe you don't know who to turn to. Maybe you don't know what to do, what to say. Folks, I'm telling you, when you get your line aligned with the will of God, it's the best and perfect place to be. Even when things aren't good, 
you can still be in the will of God and be okay. So what does it mean when Jesus says you're neither hot or cold? I want you to think about it this way. What do you need to do to make water room temperature? Just leave it alone, okay? Absolutely nothing. Leave water alone, comes room temperature. Now, suppose you want hot water. What do you do? Put it on the stove, go to the microwave. One of those two ways, heat it up. And water never becomes hot on its own. What if you want cold water? You have to do something to make it cold. Either put it in the refrigerator, put ice cubes in the water. It never becomes hot or cold if left to itself. And so here's the issue they were facing. The Laodiceans weren't guilty of an intentional sin. They weren't guilty of immorality or worshiping other gods or believing in false teaching or welcoming false prophets. We've seen that in all the churches so far, haven't we? I mean, we've seen that. That's a major issue. In order to be guilty of those things, you had to do something. Okay? How do you become lukewarm? Listen to me. Just do nothing. A lukewarm Christian is nothing more than a room temperature Christian who's become just like their environment. And so rather than changing the world around them, you allow the world to change you. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm tired of that, aren't you? I'm tired of not being the one to stand up and changing the world. Can I get an amen? If you want to change the world that you live in, the easy thing to do is pass the buck to somebody else and pray that they'll do it. But you know what? When you pass the buck, they never do it the way that you want it done. Have you thought about that? Because we're so picky and we don't trust people. So here's my deal. If you've got a problem with the world, stand up and try to make a difference in it. Stand up and try to make a difference in the place you work. Stand up and try to make a difference to the influence and the culture around you. I know it's hard. I know it's a challenge because we're in the minority, okay? There's a whole lot more people living in the world than there are living for Christ. But you know why? Because a lot of Christians are absolutely doing nothing. Now, don't say you're stepping on my toes. This is Jesus speaking, okay? So the Laodiceans are hearing this, and they're thinking, now, wait a minute. We've got a pretty good place to live. That's part of the problem, okay? So why does Christ hate lukewarmness so much? Because it appears that nothing really matters to the person and nothing really matters to the church. And they slowly come to stand for nothing, They're comfortable. They don't want to be bothered by anything that could lead them to be uncomfortable. Now, let let me say that again. They don't want to be bothered by anything that could lead them to be uncomfortable. They're no different 
than anyone else. They do what everyone else does, and they blend in with the world. The bottom line is this. The church was no longer effective. They were so comfortable, and they focused so much on their own needs and their wants and their desires that they had lost their spiritual passion. Do we struggle with that today, church? Do we struggle with my wants and your wants and your needs and your desires? Man, I wish for once in the life of the church, I would hear more and more people say, I don't really care what I want. I want to do what's pleasing to God. And if it's pleasing to a whole lot more people than me, then so be it and let's get on with it. But a lot of times, what do we do? We get in our little huddles and we think of life in the church our own way and we get in another little huddle and then we get in another little huddle. What do we do? We go to the huddle that makes us happy, happy, happy. And you know what? I am sick and tired of that in the life of the church. I didn't figure I'd get an amen on that. And I know you are too, but you're afraid to say it. Folks, listen, this is serious business, isn't it? Jesus says, I don't want you cold. I don't want you lukewarm. Be, be one or the other. Decide who you're going to be. But just blending in is not going to cut the mustard with me anymore. That's pretty much as straightforward that I know that Jesus can say it. I love how the author John Stott says it. He says, the Laodicean church was a half-hearted church. Stay with me here. And perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to our 21st century than this. And he goes on to say, next, it describes vividly the respectable, the sentimental, the nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby, it's anemic, and we appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. I'll leave that up there for a moment. Look at that again. Describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. You know what I say to that? Amen and amen. I think one of the biggest struggles in the life of the local church today is apathy. When apathy sets in, what happens? If I'm an apathetic person, what am I doing? I'm just here. Now, I'm comfy. and Don't mess with my comfort zone because Lord knows that gets us all out of whack, doesn't it? I'm comfortable. Folks, Jesus did not call us to sit on the sidelines and be comfortable. Jesus called us, coach, to get involved, to get on the team, and to get to work. And when you know your gift or your gifts and you use them, you're going to be so busy 
working and serving the church and each other, that your wants and your needs and your desires are going to be taken care of because you're getting yourself onto somebody else. You're getting the focus off of self and onto something else. Well, this this church at Laodicea, they were knee-deep into it. I mean, can you imagine if we went to worship on Sundays with the same attitude of expectancy that we had for a concert or a ball game? Can you imagine what worship would be like? We wouldn't worry about what songs were sung or the message or the length or who wore what. We'd be here for the same reason, praising God, worshiping the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we would shake this building to its foundations. And we wouldn't have time to worry about all those other details. We wouldn't even have time to meet because we would be so busy serving and worshiping. Again, you ask yourself, how do you change this? A better church begins with... Thank you, Glenn. A better church begins with me. A better church begins with me. you got to take ownership. You can't throw it at somebody else. you got to take ownership for yourself. That this is the kind of person that I'm going to be. I'm not going to get wrapped up in religiosity. I'm not going to get wrapped up into churchanity. I'm going to fall back in love with Jesus and let him be the Lord and master of my life. And so I counsel you, verse 18, to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. And listen to this great statement in verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now listen to this. Isn't it amazing that the worst church of the seven gets the best invitation? That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? It's just like Jesus, though, isn't it? After exposing their indifference, he offers himself. Well, I don't know about you, but I want a meal like that, don't you? And I want to sit at that banquet table with Jesus at the head. And I want to soak it all in. And I want to learn from my King of kings and Lord of lords how life really is. And so I want you to look at this picture on the screen. This is a painting by Holman Hunt in which Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking. I want you to take a look at it. If you look at it real close, there's something odd about it. Can you see it? may not can see it from our screen, 
Where's the doorknob? There's no doorknob, is there? The artist is telling us Jesus wants to enter the home, but it's up to the person inside to open the door and to let him in. There's no handle on the door. And so Jesus knocks, but what has to happen? You and I have to decide, am I going to open that up and let him in? Because here's what happens. When I open up and let him in, man, i got to give up a lot. When I open that up and let him in, things are going to change. Things are going to be a little different. Things need to be different. Things need to change. When you open that door up and let him in, wow, what a deal. All of a sudden, everything that's broken, he's going to fix. He's going to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, okay? And we've got a lot of lives, a lot of people that are letting everything else in but Jesus. And so he comes to us again and again, and he knocks. And he says, I want to spend time with you. And then he waits. What do we do? Let him come in. And just like you would tell somebody that's coming to your house, come in and make yourself at home. Let's tell Jesus that. Come in and make yourself at home. Maybe we even need to say, clean this house up. Maybe literally. But maybe real literally too. Clean it up. To him who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So for all the foolish and fallen and messed up and mixed up, worn out, discouraged, compromised, downtrodden, unlovely church people who wish and dream and secretly hope for a new start, take heart. Christ can offer it to you. Christ has come for us. He stands and he knocks. Will you let him in? And to those who answer yes, he comes in and he makes all things new. And we welcome him and he will be with us forever. And we'll be with him. So here's the deal. We get Jesus now and we get Jesus forever. What a deal. Get him now. You get him forevermore. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we've looked at strong words this morning from you. We need to hear these words. We need to come to you. We need to leave it all at your feet. Father, we're amazed, but we're not surprised. At a message like this, pretty bad situation going on in this church, but yet you give them a great 
invitation to live with you. Father, help us to cling to the truth that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're overcomers in this life, Father. It's one thing to hear that. It's another thing to believe it and to live it out in our lives. But Father, I pray that we can wake up and I pray that Lamar Avenue will humble herself and we will allow you to do with this church what you want done. And help us to enjoy that ride, serving and singing and worshiping and being your hands and your feet And the ways that we have been a blessing to this community, we want to do more, Father, because we want more people to see you. Help us with that. Show us your glory and your vision and your mission that you already have in place. And help us to get on board with it. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said,